0: Yeah. So, uh, so what you wanted to tell me? Something? I just wanted
1: to say I had a great memorial day with our grandson. We were hanging out, doing blowing bubbles with Jack, and uh, you were doing playing throwing the ball with him. And he, was, I, I, uh, he would. Did you see him go I and sit alive in your with lap? My grandson. Did what? you see him? He would go and sit in your lap for a little while, yeah. and then he would come and sit in my lap for a little while. Yeah. He's he's so. He sweet. had a better
0: time sitting in my lap. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think he really enjoyed <laughs> and it. Then, and
1: then, then did you see me when? I we're was waving. A, we're just having a chatter. You I, was, <laughs> I was waving at Jack. Yeah. Did you see me when I was waving I at Jack and at at Jack I fell out of my chair?
0: I did. Jack and I laughed. <laughs> we laughed it at that. It was funny. It was, and you was, kind of tumbled. It was tumbled. slow motion. You seemed angry and upset and you were laughing at the same time. I wasn't time.
1: angry at all. I was laughing. You were doing
0: all that at the same time. It was
1: just kind of shocking.
0: Well, we have kind of a, a, a really special program today too. Yes, It's yes. a follow-up of our last program, right? In which we talked to uh, four Vietnam veterans. Exactly. And now we're going to talk to the uh, to the producers and directors and actors and the actor. from the mm-hmm. from the Hudson uh, Warehouse. So, uh, I I I think it's time to get started. Let's go. Here we go. There we are. There we are. We're back here at Get park right?
1: And this is BCR. We are following up our conversation with the four Vietnam veterans. And with us today are members of the Hudson Warehouse, the other Shakespeare in the Park. The other
0: Shakespeare in the Park. Right? They
1: produce plays throughout the year on the Upper West Side in Riverside Park. On Veterans Day in 2018, they produced a show based on the testimony of several Vietnam War veterans. We recorded some of that testimony and edited it into a 30 minute audio presentation. Uh, We are going to talk with the actor, one of the actors, the writer and the director of that play and then present the dramatization of that testimony at the end of our conversation.
0: Yeah, And with us today uh, is my good friend Nicholas Martin-Smith, the producing artistic director of the Hudson Warehouse and the director of the uh, Veterans Day Production. Uh, that we're going to be featuring. Suzanne Lee is the theater's executive director and playwright. And we have with us George Wells, who performed the testimony of Tom Peloton. Jake Lesh, who enacted the words of Arthur Fayella, and Ben Farmer, who represented James Britton, could not join us. So we're sorry about that. So Welcome. welcome all. Dubar Pro Radio. Thanks Thank for having us. Uh, uh, Nick, you've, you've been on the show. I have several a, a times. A few times, right? A couple uh, times, yes. Where's your martini?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm drinking water right now. Oh, are That's we okay. not feeling well? Um, oh, my throat feels a little scratchy. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, okay. All right, all
0: right. And, and Susan, you're having, looks like
3: you're having the same beer I'm having. Yes,
4: not? the lightest beer I could find. <laughs> okay, all right.
0: And
3: George, you're not drinking anything? Uh, no, I bring it all with me. Okay. All right, beforehand. all right, okay. <laughs>
0: First, let me say, it was a whole lot of fun taking Suzanne's work, uh, her testimony, with the three veterans and translating it into a radio play. Uh, I worked with Nicholas and the three actors, uh, and it could be heard following this conversation. So my question is, how did you find these veterans? There were more than three. There were about five or six. There were seven. Or in, in Seven in yes. total. So, Suzanne how, Suzanne, how did you find them?
4: It was very difficult, <laughs> I must say. Um, I thought finding Vietnam vets would be an easy thing because there's still many out there. Mm-hmm. I contacted many, many veterans um, organizations in New York City and in Washington D.C. Phone calls, emails, um, y- you name it. I did everything to reach them, and not one person got back t- back to me. I'm so surprised. I, I, I was like shocked. I yeah. was uh, stunned, and it was very. I was very. Uh, Discouraged, discouraged, I'm discouraged sure. Maybe and, they didn't and
0: believe a, you were really interested.
4: Uh, fine. I don't know what the problem was, but I couldn't get through to anybody. Um, luckily, someone gave me a, a book to read that was letters from Vietnam, and I read these letters, which were amazing. And then I tried to hunt down the writers of these letters. Okay. And to my uh, <laughs> wonderful happiness, I found Thomas Pelleton's letters, and I and I and I found out he lived in New York City, which was wonderful. And it's one of those serpendipitous pen- ser- things where um, I ran to my boss at Goddard, and I said, um, I found one veteran, he lives in New York City, and I looked him up, and you know him. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I know. It turned out that my boss and Thomas Peloton were on the same board of directors for um, Harlem um, wow. chamber music. Uh-huh. And so she goes, Tom was in Vietnam. My boss didn't even know her closest friend had served in Vietnam. Oh, my he, goodness. He had been so under the radar about it. He had an amazing
0: career after Vietnam. Oh, Tom yes.
4: Oh, oh, oh beautiful, beautiful. He's an opera singer. He's he's a musician. He's a conductor. He's a, a chaplain. He's everything. Anyway, I, when I ran to my boss and says, how can I get a hold of Thomas Peloton? She goes, let me introduce you to... And he immediately invited me to a concert. He was giving a concert within a week. He was giving a concert on, on the upper side, and said, "Would you be my special guest?" I said, "I'm honored to, to 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 be to meet you under these circumstances." And so Nicholas I went to the concert, and um, Thomas Peloton described who I was and that I was doing this Vietnam thing, and just by one of those things again, the man is to me turned to me and says. I was also in Vietnam. Oh, my that, goodness. And that was James, so James Britton. So it was just one of those wow. wonderful, yes. Yeah, so then I went to his home, and I don't know, somehow word got around that I was in there, because then somebody in James Britton's apartment building um, said I was in Vietnam, and it was Arthur Fiella. So it was just it was this thread that just kept kind of growing and growing. Right, right, right. So I lucked out with that book that led me to Thomas Peloton. It was like one of those incredible things. And it was
0: similarly, you found the other veterans, the other four veterans, in a similar way, one led to the other?
4: Yes, and uh, since I work at Goddard Riverside, um, they have a senior center, and another a veteran was a senior um, at, at the center, and he, um, um, he was able, Abraham Rodriguez, um, I was able to interview him, and that was a wonderful thing. Another thing, too, that was really important to me was I really wanted to find um, women. I want to uh, represent women who served in Vietnam, and that was very, very, very difficult, and I really did my research, and I studied it, and I finally found some newspaper articles, and I found a woman named Edie Meat and she was a Red Cross um, um, Army nurse, and I hunted her down. She's in upstate New York, so we did all our interviews by telephone, but I interviewed her for hours, about for three different telephone conversations, and I was able to transcribe our telephone interviews into this, so thankfully I... <laughs> I, you know, I got lucky with her. So I was able to represent a female voice. That's an incredible amount of work. Yes, it was. was. It,
1: was it at all difficult to get them to talk to you, to tell their stories?
4: Yes. Yes. Well, for instance, Arthur Fiala grilled me intensively before he would open up. Because he felt I would um, exploit their stories. He was afraid that I... He wanted to
0: make know that you were genuine.
4: Yes, he wanted to um, see if I was um, legit. And an honest, and not somebody who's out to, I don't know, take advantage of their, their stories or something. I mean, um, so we, we talked for a while before he finally goes, okay, I can trust you. Right. So, yeah. And I guess
0: they, they knew they could trust us because we knew you. Yeah, exactly. We kind of became exactly. closer because of you.
4: Yes, but definitely there was a period of who are you and why do you want our stories? Um, and once, you know, I, I I'm very upfront and honest and once they could see who I was, there was no um, agenda except to give them a voice to honor them and to um, let the let the world know um, of their experiences, their sacrifices, and their histories because I just feel like they are living histories of a war that is so maligned and so misunderstood and they have a chance now to tell the stories and, and clarify the war and make it more understandable and, and so we can show more compassion to those who serve.
1: Well, and also, too, the, um, whatever the politics of the time were, whatever got us there and kept us there, had nothing to do with them. Exactly.
4: They were innocent. Yeah. they're thrown into the war. Um, Victims themselves. They completely. And they all suffered the consequences. They came back different and they had to rebuild their lives and they all suffered from post-traumatic stress. So we really do owe them a debt. Huge. Yes yes yes. Yeah. So that was the whole point of doing this commemoration was to honor these, their stories.
0: And And you can hear Arthur Faella and Tom Peloton and James Britton's story in uh, Barco Radio number 44. just go back back and t- take a listen to that. There's uh, one story that we did not talk about um, when we were talking uh, to Arthur Faella. Um, that I felt would not be fair or appropriate to address on Memorial Day. It was so atrocious and hard to hear. Um, but it's part of this horrible war that our country went through. Um, and a story that you included in your production and the veteran, uh, do you know which story I'm talking about?
4: Is it the POWs? Yeah. Is it Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
0: Arthur Fayella testified that his unit killed many dozens of wounded Viet Cong POWs. Let's listen to the testimony as enacted by Jake Lesh. Bill
5: 701 was one of the hardest things I had to do over there. It was mostly dead and wounded North Vietnamese soldiers. So we took the hill. And there are hundreds of wounded Vietnamese prisoners of war. We couldn't take care of our own wounded soldiers. There was no way we could take on all these wounded POWs. So we had to shoot and kill them all.
4: How did that conversation come about? Um, It was very interesting. Um, He and I met uh, many, many, many times um, for hours at a time. And um, that came out at the very end of many, you know, after knowing him for a while. Because he held on to that story. He didn't feel he could trust that with anybody. Yeah. But by the end of, you know, hours, and uh, it, it came out and it was, the I think it was the hardest story to share because he was so afraid of being, um, I mean, he killed many people, but this was the hardest and he was afraid of my judging him. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, of, of, of my reaction, and um, he he's a very sensitive person, and he often comes to tears telling these stories, because right. he still um, to this day feels intensely what he saw and what he had to do, and he still he still cries. Yeah. And when he told the story, he welled up, and he was so afraid of my reaction that I just had to hug him.
1: And that was your reaction?
4: Absolutely, because it was so hard for him to do something that he, it was the last thing he wanted to do, but there's no way out of that circumstance. It was horrible. And the fact that he trusted me with that story was a a gift. I I was so honored that he could trust me with it. And then later on I said, how do you feel if we put that on stage? And when we did it on stage, he was shaking um, in, in the audience. He was so afraid that the whole audience would turn on him but at the end of it, he got a standing ovation. Oh my gosh! Yes, so it was a beautiful way to uh, give him the the release that he he needed after all these years. He was holding on to this horrible thing, right. and, th- and to have a, 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 an auditorium full of people clapping made him. I think it helped his um, process of letting go of that horrible, horrible, horrible time in his life. Why do you think they clapped? because these, he was just a kid. These are just kids thrown into war and t- to the most atrocious brutalities. And, and they get to see him now and he's a, a compassionate human being. He's not a monster. No. He's not a hardened criminal. He's not a, a war-bitten soldier. He is a compassionate, generous man. And they went, wow, he went through that and he can still walk among us with love and humanity. They clap for his humanity and his courage and to face us, his 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 judges. And we clap because um, we can tell him now, you are not judged. You are just a kid. And we can, um, you don't have to hide from the story or be ashamed of your actions anymore. And I think, I'm, I, I would like to believe that was cathartic for him. Nicholas. Yeah.
0: Hi. Uh, the Hudson Warehouse is an Upper West Side treasure. Huh. Uh, been around now for, 12, 13 years? 16. 16 years? Yeah. Uh, You produced a Veterans Day Memorial production for several years now, yes? Yeah. Um, Why do you feel that there's a need to do this kind of a thing? Why do we need to keep coming back to this? Why do you put so much work into it? You and Susan put so Um, much work into it.
2: I think it all has to be remembered, the oral history. And um, I think as years go by, we lose another veteran, we lose, lose another story. Produce uh, uh, first hand experience. Uh, these guys have that first, you know, it's first hand experience. It's not stories that are told through, you know, generation. No, this is, these guys are within all of our lifetime. So that's uh, that's why I feel like this, in this case, they need, the stories need to be told.
0: And is, is uh, Hudson Warehouse going to continue to tell the stories of the veterans? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, we started with World War I. Uh, Then we did the Civil War on the 150th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did World War II. Susan wrote uh, a piece on World War II interviewing three 90-year-old vets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then this uh, Vietnam uh, piece that we've done twice now. We did it uh, 2018 was the second time we've done that.
0: Can I say, unfortunately, you have a lot of material to work with. I do. Well, no, uh, I mean, I mean, the Hudson Warehouse can present a lot of material about yeah. America at war.
2: Yes, yes, and we have—it's uh, a library now. I mean, we, we and it's all—we uh, have slides, we have uh, soundtracks, we have—and so it's sort of—they're um, all kind of in the can, waiting to be presented again. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. George, thank you for helping to make this recording happen. Yeah. Had you met Tom prior to your performance?
3: Um, yes, we 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 had. Uh, Met uh, uh, in the in, a, in the prior performance, but we I got to actually really um, appreciate uh, meeting this gentleman uh, on the second uh, uh, reading, and it was uh, and we've subsequently ha- had a lot of correspondence, and it's uh, amazing. It's amazing to have met this man.
1: Was there anything in 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 his uh, behavior or in the letters that you received that informed your choices as an actor?
3: Uh, primarily it was his ability to not show uh, in the moment when you're talking to him um, anything that would reflect what I was speaking. The words, the stories that uh, I, ha- I had to find a way to express as, a, as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, this man that had found his life you know, beyond beyond the context of of,
1: of Vietnam, of
3: Vietnam, right? Um, and it's and it's remarkable. It's it's really remarkable. and I mean, it's it's why I'm an actor. It's because I'm fascinated endlessly by by how we are able to face these these tribulations and and what it is and 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 what it looks like on the other side.
0: Hmm. An
3: actor doesn't really. Ever have a chance to meet the character he's betraying? It's outrageously horrifying. I mean, to speak as a certain breed of actor, but I think any actor knows the insecurity that you come into it with. There, there's certainly amount an amount of of uh, noble, you know, endeavor to tell people stories, um, but it's necessarily horrifying. And 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 uh, ballsy. It's uh, Ballsy on your part. Uh, as a, yeah, as an actor, to to truly attempt to it when it's when it's a real story, and then let alone when it's somebody that is there with you that you've met. It's uh, it's going to affect you in a very different way, and mm. you're going to have to fight through a very different set of. Um, of, uh, of, of, of the reality of, of, of this person.
0: I, I want to play one more time one piece that you performed uh, in, in which um, Tom Peloton talks about when he came home and kind of a realization of who he was
3: to the people that were around him. Let's, let's yes. listen to that now. When I came back from Vietnam, well, in the airport in Seattle, I was in uniform. Someone came up to me and spat in my face. Remember, that was what was going on. Not asking me how I felt about anything. I was a symbol.
0: Rats, so I,
3: I thought that was a, a beautiful
0: characterization, representation, feeling of what he said. I, I remember we were in the studio doing that and I thought that was probably one of the best. Kind of. Um,
3: I had time uh, in between our our last reading of this and and uh, talking further with, with, with Tom, and um, it's that's that's the surprising. That's the that's that's why you are intrigued. That's why your gut pulls you into this kind of creative you know endeavor is because you meet Tom Peloton, and that's the way he talks about it. I was in the airport. And I got spat on. It wasn't dramatic. It wasn't you know overly. It wasn't didn't smack you in your face. But he's able to talk about this now with everything that he's done since. And uh, yeah, I got into the airport and I got spat in my face. And thankfully, I have Nicholas Martin Smith and Susan Lee here to uh, relay what these stories are and to find and find what the story is in the moment versus what it is you know hence and how to express that, but it's... In the moment, right now, what
0: it means to us now. Um, Nicholas, um, let's, let's, let's bring it up to right now. What's, what's going on with the Hudson Warehouse this summer?
2: Oh, we started our summer season uh, uh, with Antony and Cleopatra, which opens on June 6th. That's directed, actually, by George K. Wells. <laughs> that's neat. Uh, and that's followed up with a new piece uh, that Susan Lee has written, which is uh, Men in the Iron Mask, and that opens in uh, July and runs through the month. It's
0: part of your D'Artagnan... Exactly, the uh,
2: D'Artagnan romances. It's three years... Uh, it's actually four years at Dumas, but it, this is the conclusion of the, th- uh, the, tri- uh, the uh, trilogy of the D'Artagnan romances, uh, which started off with Three Musketeers in 2017, followed up by... Um, three Musketeers. Twenty years later, last year and this year, it's a man in the Iron Mask.
0: Don't miss it if you live on the Upper West uh-huh. Side or any place in the world.
1: <laughs> come uh-huh.
2: coming
0: over to Sotheby's is uh-huh. money, my
2: It's own. a great
1: experience. It's it's wonderful production. Nice. Thank you. Check we
2: finish out. up. Uh, we finish up the summer in August with uh, Mary Wise of Windsor, which I'm sort of setting in the Borscht Belt during the '60s. So oh, it should be kind of hey, colorful, they, they're colorful they're and Belt, funny. Okay. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. All right. those resorts.
1: Nice. So I have a question. Yeah. Have you been able to? discuss with anything, this problem of those helicopters? Are they
0: No. no. <laughs> well, maybe we should say what the problem is.
1: Well, they fly over the...
2: the, the yeah, de, de Blasio, I think, uh, allowed or passed a law so they could traverse the city. Yeah. Um, so These the
0: helicopters to, coming over from
3: Jersey.
2: Well, no, no, exactly I think they're from, no. from
1: this, the island, right? From... Sa- uh, um, they run up and
3: down the island. Long Island, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. They, well,
2: they go island. up and down Manhattan, yes. Uh, there was a, actually, there was a, a uh, accident a couple of years ago where a helicopter hit a plane. Uh, huh. So they, they no longer permitted the uh, helicopters to go up and down on one side of uh, um, the Hudson. You had to fly up on the right side and then fly down on the left. Well, then de Blasio changed the law, which allowed them to traverse... The city. city. Uh, and the problem is that the, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument is actually a landmark which Easy anyone see. can see. <laughs> so they use that as the marker to. Fly make their turn the, exactly which is just landing. a nightmare it's We've a nightmare of air, never had air that noise experience.
4: the helicopter air noise is atrocious yeah and I don't think it's not just for outdoor theater I don't think any residents would, would not like to live like that it's really it's really uh, And we
0: gotta contact Linda and Helen Rosenberg. yeah we We're have to do that sisters, no and yes and see if they can get something done yeah, yeah. yeah Gail Brewer all of them it does yeah. hurt the quality
4: right. of life it really right. does yeah. so thank you okay. Thank you. Thank you you, you all. Thank you for having us.
1: For sharing your perspectives on this important statement about our country at war. And now we will hear the words of Arthur Faella, Tom Pelleton, and James Britton as enacted by Jake Lesh, George K. Wells, and Ben Farmer.
0: This is a Bar Crawl Radio Extra Memories of War. On Memorial Day 2019, we invited three veterans of the Vietnam War to Gephardt's Bar for some beer and a conversation about their lives. We had met them through a Veterans Day play produced by the Hudson Warehouse in 2018. Their war memories had been collected and edited into a play form by Susan Lee. Recently, we invited the actors from the Hudson Warehouse production into the BCR studio to record the testimony of these three war veterans. Excerpts of this recording were used in BCR number 44. Tom Pelleton's testimony was read by George K. Wells. James Britton's words were presented by Ben Farmer. Jake Lesh voiced Arthur Fiella's words, and Nicholas Martin Smith was our narrator.
2: Technical Sergeant Thomas Pelleton was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon in the Opera and Theater Department when he got his draft notice. He worked in Army Intelligence assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, the famous Screaming Eagles.
3: First thing I saw in the Saigon airport were soldiers that looked like walking zombies. I said, oh my God, this is terrible. They sent us right up north. There's a lot of activity in the mountains right above us, major fighting going on. And early in the morning, I was going to the latrine. And your worst nightmare. With your pants down, we were rocking. Panic. You simply don't know what's going on. Eventually, I got to my area, and it was bad. The fourth night, because the helicopters were around us, they were targets for rocket attacks, so we were in the most vulnerable place. And sure enough, it happened. We were rocketed, and I ended up under my bed, with my whole life going in front of me. This was the end. I worked with a senior non-commissioned officer, an NCO, who was an alcoholic, and he loved me because I could take over. Between my theater experience, my love of maps, my intelligence, I briefed everyone who came in. Then I would fly missions with the helicopters. I only had one combat mission, and this was the worst one. I was in the helicopter, and we were shot at um, a door gunner. A bullet went right through his brain. He died in my arms. I, and I remember having to take his helmet full of his brains and wash it out so that they could look at the helmet to see where the fault was in the helmet. Why the helmet didn't protect him. There were ways for people of dealing with stress. Uh, a lot of guys got drunk all the time. Or marijuana, hashish, I... I, I did that for a while. I did it the day we were attacked, and after that, I said never again will I be anything other than completely clear-headed, because I was enjoying the trajectory of the rockets headed towards us. I realized that wasn't healthy, so I listened to music to relieve the stress. I sang all the time. I was probably totally obnoxious. I went into the fields with the chief medic. We went into villages and did rudimentary medical checkups. This one village looked peaceful, but it was a place where the Viet Cong would spend the night. There's this kid who came in with all these scabs on him and uh, from a landmine, and I cleaned him up. We were supposed to be picked up in the late afternoon, but those s- stupid idiots couldn't read a map and couldn't find us. It was getting later and later, and I was getting nervous. I sang the Barber of Seville for the kids. The kids started singing singing along, Figaro, 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 <laughs> just to break the tension because we didn't know uh, when we were going to be picked up. We were setting up uh, colored flares to mark the place. I did not want to spend the night there. You had your nickname on your hat. The kids asked me what it was. My nickname was Beethoven. <laughs> then it got shortened to Bates. The army was a total mess. The hardest times I had were around Christmas and New Year's. At Christmas Eve, I had to do guard duty because all the people who were supposed to do it were drunk. You sat in bunkers and you watched. Then you had to walk out on patrol at the end. But it was monsoon season, so that was very difficult because all the vermin, all the rats, would come up and want to be in the dry bunker. If I tried to sleep in the bunker, the rats would jump on top of you, so I would go outside and sleep in the rain. <laughs> it's better than having the rats. In March 1971, as part of the fake Vietnamization of the war, they decided to do one major push to retake Khe San, which was this great disaster of the American Marines. I can't tell you how it felt flying in a helicopter into the jungle. We see this big plateau with the higher mountains around it. We can feel all the evil that had taken place. It had ghosts, literally, all around it. You could see the deforested hillsides from the ancient orange. And in landing, there's all this dust ankle-deep that you're walking through. The Marines had evacuated. It was desolated. There'd been no one around for three years. We knew, intelligence knew, that the North Vietnamese had troops all around. Geographically, we were surrounded by mountains infested with the enemy. So we were like sitting ducks, the problem the marines got themselves into. I remember the soldiers were on the ground and caught in the middle of a minefield. So they had to be rescued. The helicopter came down to rescue them. So when they were lifting the soldiers up into the helicopters, one guy fell out of his harness. And he fell right in front of me. He fell 150 feet. When I came back from Vietnam, well, in the airport in Seattle, I was in uniform. Someone came up to me and spat in my face. Remember, that was what was going on. Not asking me how I felt about anything, I was a symbol.
1: They
2: Airman First Class James Breton grew up in Connecticut and joined the Air Force. He was sent to Vietnam in August 1966.
6: As soon as I graduated from engineering school, I got a letter from the government. They said, get a physical. So I got a physical. And they said, I had flat feet. They asked, do they hurt? I knew what they were getting at. I could have gotten out of it, but I wanted to go. So I said, no. And I joined the Air Force. When my name came up, they said combat cameraman. I knew nothing about camera work, knew nothing about film. At first I didn't like it, but as I started shooting more, I thought it was pretty cool. Then they gave me my orders to go to Vietnam. My whole body broke out into a rash from anxiety. I got onto a military plane out of San Francisco. On my way to San Francisco, I was in uniform, And there were a couple of people, and they heckled me about going to Vietnam. But there was a woman there, and she straightened me out. I filmed in a Piper Cove a few times. They have pilots who stay in one location, and they've been given a certain area to fly, and they would fly it every day. And they got used to the area. They knew what the area looks like. So if one day it looks different, or if there's smoke coming out of it, he would take the coordinates and then send for a jet to come and bomb it. But before they did that, he would have to mark the spot. So we would go in and shoot down these smoke rockets, and smoke would mark the place for the jets to bomb. I'm on the plane filming that. After it was bombed, we'd go down and see what the damage was. And that was more critical time for being shot at because they'd already been bombed, so if there's anyone left, that's the guy who would shoot us. Filming for the news review got me around the place a lot. I remember this one person. I'll never forget his name. His name was Colonel Sanders, who got the Medal of Honor. He was one of the people who flew Agent Orange. They would fly five or six planes and fly a huge swath of this Agent Orange, and I would film him inside with the tanks of Agent Orange. One flight... Colonel Sanders saw that one of the planes was getting hit really hard with ground fire, and they lost one engine. So he took his plane and went under the other plane, right under it, to get the fire, to protect it. And they both lifted up and saved their life. Saved the life of the crew and everything. I thought that was amazing. I flew up to Quezon. There were the original people who lived in Vietnam. They'd be like our Native Americans here. Their camp was protected with bungee sticks. There would be poison on it, manure, and... different stuff, and they would stick up, so if you tried to climb in, you could fall on them. The natives put it all around to protect themselves. I went there, right after the Viet Cong attacked them. The bodies were taken out, but... I could see women's hair all over the place, and pieces of stuff, and I said to myself, this is why we're here. We're here to help these people. I was totally wrong and didn't have all the information. I thought we were doing the right thing, whereas over here, people are demonstrating. Of course, we never get that information. Just before we left, I asked the pilot if he could take off with the back of the plane down. I wanted to take my tripod, lock it in, tie me in, and shoot out the open back. Guy said, are you crazy? When we took off, there I was. Wind hitting me. I had a great time filming the whole plateau of Quezon. I took a lot of risks like that. I never worried about getting shot at. I had a camera. With a camera, you feel invincible. I felt it was protecting me. Everyone else was going to get shot. The pilots would sit on steel under them because if they got shot from the ground, they were protected by the steel. I was protected by my camera this pilot saw there was a lot of activity in this huge area. He called in for a B-52, big bomber plane. Called them in, and we moved out of the area. And suddenly they did these incendiary bombs. They would blow up before they hit the ground, and they would come down as fire. It was that liquid that burns up. And the whole area was on fire, and we'd see explosions here and there. I filmed all that. So much smoke was coming over it, it caused rain to come down. It's Christmas time. Bob Hope and Billy Graham were coming into town. I knew I was going to get one of them. I was really hoping for Bob Hope, but I got Billy Graham. He was there about a week, and I stayed with him. He really did impress me. So we went out to this one outback, and I had to go to the bathroom, but all I had was this outhouse. So I went in, and it was a two-holer, nothing between. So I'm sitting there, and in comes Billy Graham. He says, this food really gets to you, doesn't it? So we're just sitting there, and I'm talking with Billy Graham.
3: Some kind of wonderful
2: Yeah, 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 yeah Sergeant Arthur Faiella was from Brooklyn, New York. He got his draft notice for the Army in 1966 and was in Vietnam by May 1967. He was assigned to Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 22nd Infantry, 4th Infantry Division.
5: Landed in the Air Force Base. The moment I landed, I knew it was bad. It was so hot you could see the heat coming off the tarmac. And you could see body bags on runways, lots of body bags of soldiers, ready to be shipped home. I got malaria just a couple months into Vietnam. The first week is crucial. The nurses put me in ice bags, gave me quinine, aspirin, lots of aspirin, put me in ice tubs with a fan on me. This was the care of the medic hospitals. I can't ever thank them enough. The touch and care of those nurses was incredible. I was at the seventy-first evac outside Pleiku. When the major cities were attacked, we heard Kontum was being overrun. They said, "Leave your gear, take all the ammunition you could carry, and a canteen of water." Oh, six hundred, move out! We have to cross the airstrip. We got halfway in the middle of the airstrip, and the enemy opened up on us. We all got down. We didn't know where they were firing from. All of a sudden, gunships came, friendlies. I heard the helicopter sounds and there's three of them. They fired their rockets and I thought, they're short, man, they're short. And the rockets start landing all around us and they did another pass. A Couple of guys was hit. One of my sergeants was hit and he was sucking air. I crawled up to him and I called for medic. There was a hole in his chest and I could see his heart. The medic said, put your fist in his chest to stop the bleeding until I can get a bandage ready. When you have your fist in someone's chest, you could feel their heart and their lungs against your fist. I hit him with morphine. His blood was all over me. It's utter chaos and we get hit again with our gunships. Finally, someone said, call the battalion. Next time you make a pass, we're going to shoot you down. You're killing us. Because we were receiving fire from our guys and the enemy. The North Vietnamese hit the fuel depot. When that goes up, it sucked oxygen out of the air. We couldn't breathe. And we had to get over a four-foot wall. (laughs) I don't know how I survived. I was 22 at the time. We finally get into Khantoum. It's brutal, house to house, knocking on doors, looking for the enemy. You're being shot at, shooting us from houses, buildings, and rubble. It was a bombed-out, war-torn city. When the NVA came into the city, they killed all the American sympathizers. So there were bodies lying in the streets, animals on fire. The stink was disgusting. And you had to live with that, sleep with that. They told us it would take a few hours to secure the city. It took 11 days. We had no food. No water. We had to complete the mission. Sometimes I'd scavenge the dead soldiers. I'd find sticky rice in their bag. It was putrid, but I was so hungry I'd still eat it. During that time, I slept in the rubble. In the central highlands, it gets very cold. I used to shiver at night. I'd pull a few dead bodies of the enemy over me to keep me warm. After we secured the city, now we have to get to the mountains. The enemy took their wounded and dead up to the three hills. Up in the highlands, we confronted the NVA division. The big stuff, outnumbered eight to one. Their bunkers are in the hills. That's their home base. We're exhausted. I don't know how I made it up this far. Now we have to assault a hill. It's fortified! Air Force dropped napalm on hill 864. You think no one would survive after those napalm bombs? But nope. We had less than 80 guys to take this hill. We didn't know how many of the enemy they had. You're scared shitless. Even though I was already there eight months, how much is your luck gonna hold out? We had to go up this hill three times. And every time you went up there, you lost guys, wounded whatever Jesus of Joey has shot I'm next. You go up there knowing that. That's not easy to do. You know why you do that? It's not the bravery to do it. It's because your buddies do it. You have to do that. You have to do that. We climb up to a plateau and there's a bomb critter. I get in there with seven other guys. The guy on my left was hit, and all his brains, flesh, guts got on my shoulders. Another guy got hit in the throat. I saw movement. I did two short bursts, got three of the enemy, and my machine jammed. I went back down into the crater to change my magazine. As I got up to fire again, just two feet away from the lip of the crater, the Vietnamese were right there. I would have been dead, but two of my Latino buddies showed up behind me and took them out. I broke off and got to Hill 701, and that's where I got shrapnel in my leg. That's when I got my first Purple Heart. Hill 701 was one of the hardest things I had to do over there. It was mostly dead and wounded North Vietnamese soldiers. So we took the hill. And there are hundreds of wounded Vietnamese prisoners of war. We couldn't take care of our own wounded soldiers. There was no way we could take on all of these wounded POWs. So we had to shoot and kill them all. You know the hardest part? You never had a change of clothes. Not for months. You didn't have any underwear, but it all rotted off. We didn't take our boots off for 64 days. The guys came down with trench foot I was afraid of taking my boots off because I was afraid to see what my feet looked like. And that shirt with the blood and guts and brains on it? You don't get to change a shirt. I had to wear that shirt for months.